Well, as you know, last time uh, we started this, coming down through here, we talked about the Reformation, and we talked about how important the Reformation uh, was uh, to understand it from the pure Bible standpoint. And I, there's probably nothing more written about in history uh, the, or takes up more of an account of history in modern times, anyhow, than the Renaissance or the uh, Reformation. And we talked about how that the Reformation really, uh, what it really, uh, what it really stood for, what it re- really was happening. And I think that's really the key <clears throat> is to uh, figure out what's really going on and what's really happening uh, in that time period. Uh, we looked at the aspect of the Renaissance, and we saw how important it was to, uh, you know, to grasp the understanding of how that was, uh, how that's portrayed in history. But in reality, you know, it's uh, it's a it really uh, is a counterfeit movement down through history. I think one of the things that you uh, really begin to see through history, when I laid it out in the Bible to you, is the fact that. Uh, that concept that all history is nothing more than God moving in a direction to accomplish his plan and then the devil moving to counter that plan. And that's really what you see uh, in the Reformation. Uh, I showed you how that, and we did it at the end last time, how that the Reformation, uh, really the Reformers uh, were just the kind of like the blockers in a football game that allowed the true Bible group to get to the end of the earth. And tonight we're going to see that. Uh, We're going to look at it uh, in a little different angle tonight. And uh, we're going to come into the the Philadelphian church age, at least the start of it. And uh, you'll be able to see how this thing goes. These are key points in, in church history that I really want you to understand. If uh, when we get into uh, through Thursday night, when we get into the study and the notes in the Bible, you're going to have a little advantage over most people because I'm going to talk about uh, how to take the blank pages in your Bible and really utilize them into a complete system of understanding your Bible. Most of you have wide margin Bibles, and one of the things that you I've done in my Bible is is that I have a compressed. Uh, edition of church history. And I have built it around the six or seven key points in history that I gave you. And I showed you how that those key points in history, uh, and I've, I've marked them for you, each one as we come through church history. And the Reformation, I think, was the fifth one. There's about two or three more <coughs> that, we're, that you're going to get. And basically, if you can remember uh, these eight, seven, eight areas, uh, that's the way you want to you want to remember church history. You want to get it down and build it around those eight concepts. It's a lot easier <clears throat> to remember those eight concepts and then learn something about each one of those because each one filters into the next one. <clears throat> and that's the way you really want to do it. And I'm going to show them how to do that with a number of things, but you'll be a little ahead of the game because, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's one of the things that you want to get into your Bible once you get it worked out for yourself. But, but here again, you know, as we're studying church history, we see that great principle that God moves in a direction uh, to accomplish his purpose, and uh, the devil moves to counter that. His bride, Rome, uh, the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, during this time has lost any virtue that she has. She is no more courted and wined and dined by the world and the kings and the queens of the world and uh, so as God moves through history 
to move on with his plan that we see the devil moving uh, to counter that plan. And that's something that really makes history a lot easier to understand. Because once you get in your mind that the history is God moving down through history to accomplish the plan, then all you're going to see is history is God moving, the devil countering, God moving, and the devil countering. And it becomes a pretty easy thing to follow at that point. Now, during this time, uh, as you obviously know, the mode of, the mode of travel uh, from long distances uh, is seafaring. And uh, the uh, only two seafaring nations we have at this time, and I think this is very interesting, one represents uh, God and the other one represents the devil. And of course, uh, England is the one that is going to represent God, and Spain is the one who is going to represent uh, uh, the devil. We need to look at them so we get an understanding of how the devil tries to bring about uh, a damaging to this thing to stop the damage control as best they can. Now, let's look at England for a moment. After the Church of England split with, uh, on Henry, with Henry VIII, and we talked about that uh, he was married to Catherine of Spain and uh, wanted to divorce her for Anne Boylan, and that didn't work out very well. And, uh, but after Henry VIII splits from the Roman Catholic Church and start the Church of England, uh, after his death, <coughs> Queen Mary come to the throne. Remember that Queen Mary <coughs> was, the, uh, was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Spain. <coughs> she's totally Roman Catholic. And she's Roman Catholic through and through. And she has one goal in mind, and that's to make England a Roman Catholic church state again. She kills as many Anabaptists as possible, and uh, she is one of the leading focal point people in history. Uh, she's called Bloody Mary. And, you know, you may have drank something, one of her drinks one night before you got shaved, uh, hopefully not after you got shaved, but <clears throat> they even named a drink out of her, and it's made with tomato juice, which looks like blood. <clears throat> and she earned her name through history uh, because of the fact that she killed so many Bible-believing Christians. And um, she is somebody that has uh, been against and tried to bring England as a nation, even though that they had already established the Anglican Church and they had a good foothold. And truthfully, this is what God used to stay off her being able to turn it around. But boy, she tries. She dies in 1533. And then in 1533, then we have Queen Elizabeth takes the throne. And she probably is the greatest queen that England ever had. And she reigned from about 1533 to 1603. And I guess the only other queen that could ever compare to her, and there might be an argument of being one being better, would be Queen Victoria, who is the queen around the uh, uh, end of the 19th century, into the 20th century. And she was a great queen. But, uh, but she is pro-Texas uh, Receptus, that is the right text, She's pro-Protestant, and she's very anti-Roman Catholic. And when she comes to the throne, she obviously jerks the chain that Mary was trying to shorten up, and she really causes some problems. She's immediately excommunicated by Pope Pius V in 1570 for not being submissive to Rome. She sets the stage for uh, what's coming, the King James Bible, under James I, who takes over after her in 1603. 
but from uh, this island seafaring nation is what God is going to do to get the gospel around the world. Now, God knows that. The devil knows that. And basically, again, you see, and we've talked about this before, you see how that the devil was going to try to stop what God is doing. And we only have every other nation that is a Roman Catholic or a Protestant nation would be landlocked. In other words, they have no, they have no shore on the ocean. And, uh, or if they do, they're very a small nation, someone like Holland or someone that uh, would be a, a very small nation, not compared to England or Spain. So Spain's totally Roman Catholic and a Roman Catholic church state. You remember that we talked about this before, that how that Spain was the founder of the Spanish Inquisition uh, and is responsible for the murder of probably 50 million Bible believers in over a thousand years. We've already seen that. The Pope, because of Elizabeth defiance, <clears throat> gives King Philip of Spain, and they're in alliance together, and uh, they work together and gives him the okay to spend to send the Spanish Armada Mata to England and uh, does not have a navy. And an Armada is a vast navy of ships. And Spain <clears throat> was the greatest naval power on the face of the planet at that point. England had, had not much of a navy at all. But those were the only two seafaring nations. And God had in mind for England that that is the way, the mode of travel by which God was going to get in time the King James Bible to the ends of the earth. But the devil had other plans, and the devil was to take his seafaring nation, which was Spain, under Philip, and, uh, and uh, through connections with the Vatican, was going to uh, uh, take them and make England a Roman Catholic Church state again. So the Pope could bring them back in line. And this is typical, as we've seen, with Rome's political moves and their alliances. But God is going to move through England in preparation of the worldwide revival. And as he does that, the devil moves to cut it off. And, of course, this is what we've seen all down through history and all down through the Bible. So up comes the Spanish Armada against a nation without a navy, uh, at least a navy one-fourth the size, um, and uh, it's obvious it's what's going to happen. Right smack in the middle of the English Channel. And the English Channel is a very precarious uh, piece of water to, uh, to navigate. It's not the easiest thing in the world. But right in the middle, as the Spanish got in sight of the English coast in 1588, uh, a typhoon comes up and sinks the Spanish Armada, and uh, Spain has never, and I mean never, been uh, never recovered. And there's a great example of how God honors his word. And the applications of that are endless. I mean, it shows you that if a nation believes the word of God and stays with the right book, that they don't need an army. They don't need a navy. They don't need an atom bomb. They don't need an air force. I'm not saying that you don't have one, but I'm saying that won't be what you trust in to, to make sure that you stay secure. God has always taken care of the nations that have taken care of him. Now, we can make that one step further, and we can take it to your life and my life, and we can basically say that God always takes care of the individual that takes care of him. And uh, it's just a true statement. Uh, This is not the only move the devil makes. What I want to talk to you here for the next few moments about in understanding the Reformation is uh, even though the devil looks like he's knocked out and the Roman Catholic Church has lost her punch, that's not exactly true. 
And what you have here is during this time, and you, you never get this from history. You get this from believing the Bible and following through it. <clears throat> what the devil does here is the devil takes and does six things, or Rome does it. The devil does it through it. And these six things are known as the counter-reformation. These are things that you need to understand in history. Uh, and these are the six things that the Roman Catholic Church did to counter what God did after the Spanish Armada was sunk. She put these things into effect. The first thing that she does <coughs> is uh, the Pope orders all Catholic kings and queens that they still have left, uh, and that would be like Bloody Mary before she got the throne, Charles V, uh, Ferdinand of Spain, Louis XIV of France. Uh, the Pope orders all Catholic kings and queens who still have control over them to kill as many Bible believers as possible. Uh, the second thing, that Rome ordered all the inquisitions to be stepped up, and we know that the inquisitions were used to accuse as many Bible believers for witchcraft and black mass, and this is what Rome had claimed had started uh, and had broken out because of the people leaving the church. In other words, they turned the Reformation around and said that the people were leaving the Roman Catholic Church because the Bible believings had were involved in black mass and witchcraft that were causing people to leave the mother church, therefore they need to be killed. They did the same thing when the failure of the crusade. Remember, they blamed it on the Waldensians. And this is typical of what is going on and what takes place. The third thing is the Roman Catholic Church drew up an official list of non-recommended reading. In other words, books that they were not allowed to read if they were Roman Catholic. This is called in history and is still in, uh, in effect today. This is called the Index. The Index was a list of books that were pro-King James Bible, pro-Reformation, pro-Bible believer, and anti-Roman Catholic. And you will find that that index is, in, is still around today, and uh, there's still a list of books that the Roman Catholic Church are not allowed to read. Uh, and obviously the Roman Catholic Church is trying to keep anybody from getting any truth about the Roman Catholic Church. Your King James Bible is on that index, uh, along with just about every other book that was ever come out that was against the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the fourth thing that the Pope had done, that back in 1491, about 1556, right during this time, uh, the Pope, through a, the man we talked about him, Ignatius Loyola, set up the Society of Jesus, which uh, was called, as we know them, the Jesuits. And the Jesuits uh, were really the, become the, uh, basically the elite uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. They were the militant intellectual educators that the Roman Catholic Church put into a format by which that they were going to be used just like we in America use our CIA. And they were the intelligence organization of the Roman Catholic Church. They were the spies. They were the ones that, that did the damage that was undercover. And uh, there's incredible, incredible stuff that, that they do. One of the things that they do is that they infiltrate all of the colleges in Europe. And the, the, uh, the Jesuits uh, went in as teachers, 
And they grabbed them. The devil wasn't dumb, nor was the Roman Catholic Church. They knew that the future of getting their power back was to gain the minds of the people that were being educated at that time. So they infiltrated every, every organization, every college in Europe was infiltrated by them and in time run by them. And therefore, they, they brought back and they steered the teaching away from the Reformation thinking and back to the, uh, the naturalistic thinking of the, of, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, they, they had great influence in that. That was not all that they did. They also <coughs> infiltrated all the Protestant seminaries. The two <coughs> great <coughs> Protestant seminaries <coughs> that or around at this time, is Cambridge and Oxford. And they were the ones that was turning out the intellectual preachers of the day. And those two, uh, those two Protestant seminaries were founded uh, after the Church of England, and they are in existence today. It was the translators, uh, 57 of them, that... Uh, that did the work at Oxford and Cambridge that translated your King James Bible when it was done uh, in the 1600s. And it was the, uh, that was where it was done from. The only two publishing houses today that put out, produce the right King James Bible is Cambridge and Oxford. You're going to find that, and the people ask me this question all the time, they ask me the question of, uh, show me their Bible, and you say, is this, is this a real King James Bible? Is this the right King James Bible? Uh, I will tell you right now that every American publisher company that I know of, there may be somebody out there, but every publishing house like Thomas Nelson, uh, Word, uh, World, uh, whoever, Every publishing company that puts out a King James Bible is not putting out the King James Bible edition that the Oxford and the Cambridge people put out. Uh, they are, uh, you will find that uh, most of the thing is very subtle. Uh, on the back of your, your Bible, if you have a wide margin Bible, and mine, it's in the front, it says, Authorized King James 1611. That is the complete title of it. On an American one, you will find where it says King James Bible, 1611. You'll find 1611 AV, but you'll never find a complete title because the complete title would only go with the Cambridge and Oxford edition, so they leave off part of the title because theirs is not the text or not the edition off of those, uh, off of those old Bibles. And it may be very subtle in their changes, uh, but uh, they're not the uh, they're not the King James Bible out of Oxford and Cambridge, and that's just something that you need to put in the back of your mind and remember when you start talking to people about the Bible. The changes may be very subtle, and they may be few and far between. But you know, it's still uh, the it's still the the devil's rendition of trying to get whatever he can do. And uh, Cambridge and Oxford were the two Protestant schools from which all of the clergy were being trained. The Roman Catholic Church infiltrated, the Jesuits, infiltrated Oxford and Cambridge. And this was called the Oxford Movement in history. The Oxford Movement was the movement of the Jesuits to infiltrate the Protestant seminaries that were teaching Protestant uh, young men and young ladies 
many of the Jesuits went into those seminaries, graduated from those seminaries as Protestant preachers, and then went into those churches to destroy what the Reformers had done. And that's just exactly what they did. And many of them were teachers, and many of them taught, and once they got the... uh, once they got the inside and they got control of it, um, the uh, churches of England, Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, the Greek Orthodox, uh, were all destroyed from the inside out. It was only a matter of time jumping ahead. It was only a matter of time jumping ahead that uh, when we study uh, the demise of the Philadelphian Church, Again, it was uh, in the Philadelphian church we're going to see is built around two nations, England and America. And uh, they did the same thing in America. The Jesuits came in uh, this country in, through New Orleans. Uh, Orleans is a country in France. Many of, the, many of the cities that we have in our own country were based off of cities in Europe. New Bedford, New Hampshire. Those are, all, those are all cities in England that were called new because they were in the New World. New Orleans is based on the Orleans in France, but there's a New Orleans, and that's where the Jesuits came in. Loyola University, which is the, <coughs> the Jesuit University, is based in New Orleans. And uh, <coughs> New Orleans as Sodom and Gomorrah, or the Dead Sea are the only two places on this planet where they're below sea level. And um, there's, a, there's a reason for that. Uh, if you just want to spend a little time and figure it out. You're going to find that they did the same thing in America with a Protestant seminary, and we'll see it when we get to it, that they did in Europe. What comes in Europe out of the Reformation, because the Reformation never accomplished because of the Reformers, that was never the purpose. We know that. But what they did is they brought forth all of the ologies of humanism, rationalism, and all of the things that put out the great philosophers that were going to fill up the 17th and the 18th century that led to communism. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, all of them, Trotsky, all of them were trained by the Jesuit mindset in Europe and formed their totalitarian system based on the totalitarian system of the Roman Catholic Church. It's an incredible thing to put together and to see how it works. Today, in our own world, we have uh, very obviously that the Jesuit movement is alive and very much and very very well. It has been. The aspect of I heard on the news this week that they were talking about Senator McCarthy. Senator McCarthy was a senator in the fifties uh, that. Uh, was on, a, was on a rampage to get all the communists out of our government, and, and he saw communists everywhere. And, of course, uh, uh, McCarthy was nothing more than a Roman Catholic that uh, was operating under the concept of Rome uh, because of Rome's uh, problem with communism, going back to Lady, Our Lady of Fatima and the Portugal in 1918 and all that stuff that took place. You'll find by the time we get to the 1960s uh, and up into the Vietnam War that the Roman Catholic Church through uh, um, Cardinal Spellman in New York has pretty much got control of everything in our government. Uh, You'll find that everybody who was in a place from the commander of NATO to the CIA to every aspect, Secretary of Defense, everybody was Roman Catholic. Their sons are all Jesuit priests for the most part. 
and you're going to find that she had complete control of this country, and the only thing they lacked was a Catholic president, and they got that in John F. K. And then, of course, things went to pieces there. We see it today. The Jesuit influence has taken over every college uh, and every, just about every seminary. It's what destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention back in the early 1900s and destroyed it up to the point uh, that J. Frank Norris left and started the fundamental movement that is our roots. And, of course, the Jesuit movement destroyed everything that, uh, everything that had happened during that period of time. And she's responsible for not only what happened in Europe, but then what happened in America. And uh, the devil used them and is using them today. Many times the people that are used by the Jesuits are people that are not even, uh, uh, not even aware of the fact that they're being used. I'm not suggesting to you that everybody uh, that's connected with the Jesuit movement understands that they're part of the Jesuit movement and this is what we're doing. No, no, it's a very subtle thing. Three of the greatest Jesuit-trained and Jesuit-used people on the radio today are three of the most popular guys that you will ever find. One of them is Bill O'Reilly. He's a Roman Catholic through and through. He is Jesuit-trained from one end to the other. The other one is Shan, uh, Sean uh, Hannity, Roman Catholic right on the line. If you watch his program, both of them have this faggot-looking uh, Catholic priest on from time to time. This Monsignor, wherever he is, young-looking guy, you know. He's a Jesuit. He's a Jesuit, and they have him on there to give his political analysis of things when something comes up that involves religion, and, uh, you know, there's several of them. Glenn Beck is another one, and Glenn Beck is someone, and all of these guys look really good. All these guys say what everybody wants them to hear, wants to hear, but if you listen carefully, none of them are saying anything that really means anything because of the fact that uh, they're all, uh, they all have agendas. And I'm not saying that any of those guys say, okay, I'm part of the agenda uh, of the Jesuit. No, but I'm saying they have been trained and influenced in the way that they think. They have been given their agenda without ever knowing it, and now they're set on a cause that looks like the right cause, but it's the wrong cause. Glenn Beck gives the, gives the uh, appearance that he is for this country and the, and the solidarity of this country. But listen what he says. What he talks about is, it sounds good, but when you listen to what he says, it has absolutely nothing to do with the Word of God. Not a thing to do with it. And he is, uh, at the end of the day, he would tell you that the Roman Catholic Church is as good as any Baptist church or anybody else, and uh, he would hold up them up, and, and he puts it into one big basket, and that's exactly what the devil wants. The devil doesn't want liberals. The devil knows that liberals can't get anything done. The devil wants conservatives that just won't follow the Word of God in the Bible, and that's what they do. People listen to him. I've got people that think he's the greatest thing since the second coming of Christ. And they think he's a Christian and all these things. And yet, if you listen to his program, he never says one thing about the second coming of Christ. He never says one thing. The freedom that he talks about setting people free is the same freedom that Martin Luther King had back there in, uh, in the 60s uh, in, in, the, uh, in the movement down in South Alabama and those places. It has nothing to do with the real freedom of the Bible of getting people saved. But people are so desperate today, they hate what we have today, that when somebody comes on and talks like that, they immediately gravitate to them. That's what the Jesuits do. They give you what you want to hear, and then they deceive you in the process. And of course, this is where it's all at. Bill O'Reilly's another one. 
he seems to be on the side of right. And yet, uh, he's a point where uh, he's, as, he's, as, uh, he's as rotten as the rest of them. And uh, he would bow down to the Roman Catholic Church in a heartbeat. And all of them are Jesuit trained. I'm not suggesting that they're all orchestrated and they're all got the little card that says, I'm a Jesuit. I don't believe that for a moment. Karl Marx was, was against the Roman Catholic Church. He believed in communism. But he was trained to think that way by a, by a Jesuit system. You see, what people don't understand is the fact that the Jesuits, the Catholic Church, don't care what you believe as long as you don't believe what the Bible says. They will allow you to form, they will teach you a mindset that you will come out and you will start a totalitarian system called fascism, Nazism, or communism that is based on their totalitarian system called Roman Catholicism. And let's face it, every one of them, every, every dictator in Europe, every, every man who murdered from Stalin to Hitler was either in the Catholic Church or was in the eastern branch of the Catholic Church and were trained by the Jesuits. It's just the way it is. And uh, that Jesuit society is, is very much alive today. And we have one gigantic Jesuit college right here in Kansas City, Rockhurst. And uh, it's, uh, their influence is everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And I would, I would dare to say that it, you went to Bob Jones University or you went to Tennessee Temple or you went to Baptist Bible College, you would find the influence of Jesuit influence infiltrated even into those systems. And uh, it's just what it is. The fifth thing, <clears throat> Rome called a council at Trent, 1545 to 1564. The job of the council at Trent <clears throat> <clears throat> was to set up and to clarify and define orthodox belief. In other words, they were cutting their losses. They were reconsolidating their position. That's what you do when you get your rear end kicked in a, in a fight. If you're in the military and you get, you, get, you get beat up pretty bad and you have to retreat, you know what you do? <clears throat> you dig in and you redeploy your defenses and you, you, re, you, you, you redeploy yourself. You stop, dig in, and then you reinforce and you consolidate what you got left, and then you, you go on the offensive again. They call it a counterattack in, in military tactics. <clears throat> and that's what the Roman Catholic Church did. And what they had to do with the Council of Trent is cut their losses. They regrouped around everybody that was still with them, and then they redefined orthodox belief as for the Roman Catholic Church. And what the Council of Trent did... <clears throat> It pronounced 125 curses officially on anybody who was not Catholic. At the Council of Trent, it was decreed that if you were not a baptized Roman Catholic who belonged to the Roman Catholic Church, you could never be saved and would be damned to hell for all eternity. This one with 14 uh, curses, this came with 14 curses on those who didn't believe in baptism and regeneration, 33 curses against anyone who did believe in justification by faith, like we do, along with all the rest. They have never been repealed, and they're still on the books in Rome, and someday when the Papa Bull pulls the strings, every Catholic in this world will jump and start killing Jews this time, and then Christians in this time, uh, based on the Council of Trent, which is still in effect. And most people don't even know that. Then the last thing that they did was an extensive uh, counterfeit missionary program to counterfeit the one that was coming. You got to remember now that, uh, do you ever stop and think about why all the great explorers, 
that really found the new world and explored the new world? You ever notice that they're all Roman Catholic? You ever see that? You ever see that Columbus was sent out by Ferdinand of Spain? You ever see that Vasta da Gama, Coronado, Ponce de Leon, Magellan, Bizarro, they all were Roman Catholic. <clears throat> they all were sent out by the Roman Catholic king in Spain. And whenever they went, guess who went with them? <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> Wherever they went, I've seen those guys coming off those boats, pictures of those guys coming off those boats in paintings, where they're storming ashore and coming ashore. And guess, <clears throat> you got the guy in front with his sword. <clears throat> you got those flintlock blunderbuss things that took forever to fire, you know, that had the ligalong fuses on them. And guess who's always in the picture? A priest with the cross holding up there, bringing Christianity to all these nations. Yeah, they brought them to all these nations, okay. When Pizarro took down there and took South America, he went down through there. He was looking for El Dorado. That's not a car he wanted to drive home in. That was the city of gold. And he enslaved the Indians there, and he enslaved them, made slaves out of them, butchered them, wanting to know where that city was. And he went all through that thing. And... uh, and it was the Incas down there, I do believe, that <clears throat> in South America, and he was looking for the city of gold. When Ponce de Leon tromped through Florida, <clears throat> what was he looking for? The fountain of youth. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for the water of life, the tree of life that's found in Revelation chapter 22. That's what he's looking for. When Coronado come into, uh, when Coronado come into Mexico, <clears throat> he got all the way up into what we know as Colorado today. And you know what he did? He took Montezuma and took all of those people, took all of their gold and took everything that they had and made them slaves and claimed the land for the Roman Catholic Church. That's why those countries are Roman Catholic today. South America is Roman Catholic because that's where Roman Catholic landed. Central America is Roman Catholic because that's where they landed. Mexico is Roman Catholic because that's where they landed. When Christopher Columbus came to this country and discovered America, which he did, and he discovered a little island off the Caribbean, off the off, uh, Central America called uh, El Salvador, not the, uh, not the country as we know it, but the island out there. <clears throat> if you go back and you study his journals and you study what he's doing, he's been sailing for, I don't know, three or four months, and the men are almost ready to mutiny. And they're absolutely wanting to go to the point where they did do anything, and they want to turn around. He knows he's in trouble. They've been sailing now. The guys are scared to death because they all believed that the world was flat and you were going to go off the end of it. And they thought any day some big sea monster was going to come up and eat them. <clears throat> and they're scared to death. And if you look at the course that he's on, he's sailing across the course that he's going to hit the East Coast. But you know what happens? You know what God did? His men are so desperate and he's so desperate that they saw some land-based birds flying. And he knew that there must have been landing. You know what he did? He sent course in the direction that those birds were flying because he knew those birds had to, had to come off of land and they could not uh, just land somewhere. So he followed that course. And you know what God did? Got him, off, got him off the east coast where he was coming to the east coast and took him down, down there in Central America and the Caribbean because God was not going to let the east coast become Roman Catholic. That's why. That's why. When Columbus sails the ocean blue in 1492, he opens the door for all the other Roman Catholics and their fake missionary endeavor by which they enslave the world. Every place they go, they take the people and make them captive. And they call that conversion. And they take their gold. 
I'm going to show you something in the Bible that is absolutely one of the most astounding things based on what I just told you. Turn over to Revelation chapter 18. Now, this is the Holy Ghost description of their motive and their method of the Roman Catholic Church. You know as well as I do that Revelation chapter 17 is dealing with a great horror revelation. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 9. Pick it up in verse 9. I uh, know, pick it up in verse 7. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I said a queen. So Mary is called the queen of heaven, see? That's Jeremiah chapter 44. And am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning, talking about God's judgment on the Roman Catholic Church, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her, and the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchandise of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. Now verse 12 and 13 shows you the merchandise. Watch how the Holy Spirit of God puts it into perspective for you. The first thing, verse 12, the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet with all fine wood, with all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass, iron and marble and of cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves. Last thing, souls of men. See that thing? There's her missionary movement. The last thing on her list was the souls of men. The first thing on her list was gold. And then everything in value right down from that. And that's exactly what she did. It was common for the priest to permit pagan tribal customs to continue. <clears throat> there's places in Africa and there's places in Haiti. And there's places around this world where when a Catholic missionary set up their deal, they baptized everybody Roman Catholic and then let them practice their voodoo, their witchcraft, or whatever it was. Let their witch doctor stay in practice. It didn't matter. The end always justified the means. It didn't matter that they stayed in the paganism of what they did as long as they were baptized Roman Catholic. That's their mission program. That's their mission program. In Europe, the Roman Catholic Church the starts the 30 years war and if you go on the internet and google just type in the 30 years war you'll find that uh, and this is what I'm talking about when I talk about understanding history from the bible standpoint in Europe the Roman Catholic Church started the 30 years war which was nothing more than a good opportunity to kill bible believers for the glory of God and it, it the 30 years war took place in Germany and that uh, at Devonworth, an incident was started at a Catholic demonstration. The Pope sent in a Roman Catholic army to solve the problem, and then the Protestant 
uh, to protect the Catholics, and then a Protestant army was raised to counter the Catholic army, and the war was on. It lasted for 30 years, hence it's called the 30 Years' War. And all it was about was to take its toll on the teachings of Luther and Germany and the Reformation and to destroy what God had begun to do in the, through the Reformation in Germany. And all the time, it had nothing to do with that because all the time, uh, while this was happening, the nameless millions of people were carrying the Word of God and taking it, getting ready to go to the ends of the earth. And uh, the Reformation, and I told you this before, the Counter-Reformation did its work. No question about it. You're going to find that the children that came out of the Roman Catholic Church who were never part of the true line and never part of the true Bible-believing line, they can't shake, uh, they can't shake off the old uh, Roman Catholic Church. But God, as I showed you last week at the end of our lesson, pulls an end run. And history moves on east to west. The Reformation was used of God in many ways. There's no question about that. And this is, again, what you've got to understand. It was used in many ways that have never been written about because man's non-biblical approach uh, to the Word of God, uh, once a man takes God or the Bible out of history as the authority on history, he is completely lost to his position in history. And that's why, as I told you, Proverbs 22 and 23 are absolutely essential in getting the landmarks down. And this is evidenced in every work by every writer who tries to write a book on church history without the Word of God and his final, as his final authority. He'll never see it. He'll never see it. Hence, they will lump all of the Christians around the Catholic Church and the real Bible-believing groups get shoved out because of, uh, as heretics. If you don't think for a heartbeat that another thing that the Jesuits didn't do, they went back and they rewrote history. They're the ones that took St. Pat, who was a Bible-believing, hellfire, damnation preacher, and canonized him 400 years after his death to make him a Roman Catholic. They're the ones that went back and re-rent history. They're the ones that went back and retranslated and rewrote uh, Wycliffe's Bible when it first came out. Uh, they're the ones, or Tyndale's Bible, they're the ones who did everything that they could do to rewrite history so when you and I read it today some 300 years later, we have a complete absence of any kind of truth or knowledge about it because the next thing that they did, that we're going to study in time, they took the Bible from us. Once they took the Bible, you had no pivotal point, no landmarks in history, Roman Catholic Church got a free hand. Anytime you're in a dark house with no lights on and you can't see the hand in front of your face and somebody takes your flashlight away, you're going to trip over the furniture. You're going to fall down the stairs. That's exactly what had happened. If the reformers alone were the great awakening that God was looking for and the revival that the word was waiting for, then it was a total flop. For it has been already stated, the Reformation uh, and their movements became just as dead uh, as Rome uh, in less than 200 years. 200 years after Martin Luther led the Roman Catholic Church out of the uh, Lutheran Church out of the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church was as dead as a doornail. Presbyterian Church was as dead. Uh, Mother Rome reclaimed what she lost. And this is what people don't see and understand because they don't have the Bible. The Reformation wasn't about the Lutheran Church. It wasn't about the Presbyterian Church. It wasn't about that those people were going to do anything around the world. It was a people that were in those nations who were going to do something who were already Bible believers that opened the door and broke the back of the Roman Catholic Church. But we begin to see 
what we do begin to see is God raising up two of the greatest nations the world has ever seen that come out of the Reformation. And the first one is England. And for the next 300 years, England is, we're going to study, is going to be the, the main pivotal point that God does what he does. The second nation that's going to gain the prominence after England goes off the scene will be the United States. And we'll talk about that when we get into that point. England and America. And with the start of the Reformation in 1580, we see the beginning of the greatest period in church history, the Philadelphian church period, or commonly called the Church of uh, the Open Door. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible, and I want you to read over here in Revelation chapter 3. We want to look at this. And there's some things that we need to learn about this that will probably, maybe this you probably already know, but that's okay. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. And hast kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Uh, and he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto uh, the churches. Now, first thing we look at here is, we, we, this thing is loaded with everything that you and I need to see and understand. The first thing you need to see, and it's, a, it's, it's all through these first three chapters, and you keep hearing him say it over and over again. Basically, he that hath ears, let him hear what the church saith, the Spirit saith, undo the churches. In these first three chapters, there is a message that God wants us to get as the church. He says it over this thing over and over and over again. And the message is that if you're going to figure out how to do what God wants you to do, you've got to get with the right, right people. You've got to get with the true line. And the only way you're going to do that is to follow church history. And that's why he keeps saying, if you've got ears, you hear what the Spirit is saying under the churches. He's trying to teach you something. And now we come to verse 7. And, uh, and by the way, this is, and I've told you this many, many times, this is no secret. This church, uh, this church, the Philadelphian church, is my model for old paths. I listened to what the Spirit was saying. I saw the churches, and I know exactly which one I'm supposed to model mine after. And, of course, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And that's the hallmark of this church. You're going to see that uh, you're going to see that uh, this church is a holy church. You're going to see that this church has the truth. 
you're going to see that this church has the key of David. I think that's very instructive because when you come back to it and you study the key of David, uh, it says that, uh, that he is true and that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth and shunneth and no man openeth. Now we're talking about the church of an open door. And to open that door, you've got to have a key. That key is called the key of David. And it's no accident it's called the key of David because we know that David was probably the greatest man in the Bible as far as to his relationship to the Word of God and what God had given him. After all David had done, the Bible says that uh, good and bad, the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. It says he did what was right all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And uh, when you look at that and you realize that it talks about this church having the key of David and a key opening a door and a door being a door that is open that no man can shut, we know then that the key there was the key that David had was his attitude toward the Word of God. And it shows you that the key of David in your life and my life that's going to open the door of your life individually and this church as a ministry is going to be your attitude toward the Word of God. You get the right book, you got the right key, God will open up the door. Now, it's on this basis that I talk about building a Philadelphian church in the Laodicean church period. And you can begin to see, maybe, if you're in the Iron Man group and we're talking about these things coming through here, you begin to see how hard that really is today. Because nobody wants to, first of all, has a Bible. Second of all, nobody wants to believe the Bible. Third of all, nobody wants to do what the Bible says. We want to call ourselves Christians, but we want to run by our own set of rules. I mean, it doesn't, Bible, it doesn't matter if the Bible says this is wrong. We want to do it. And when we get caught doing it, then we squawk about it and we come to, you know, we, we cause a problem over it when the Bible's very clear in it. I mean, but that's the mark of the Laodicean church. And the key of David was the key to this church. And because it had the right key, and that key, if you want to know where it's at in the Bible, that key is one whole chapter in your Bible. The longest chapter in your Bible, Psalms 119. 176 verses that show you the key to the Word of God. It's the only chapter I know of in the Bible. It's the longest chapter. It's the only chapter I know in the Bible that every verse tells you something different about what the Word of God will do for you. The greatest single chapter anywhere, and that is the key to your Bible, and that certainly was the key to David's relationship with God. So if you want to mark the key of David in your Bible, it'll be Psalms 119. Because of it, God opens the door, and that door is the ministry. And that Bible says that when God opens it up because they got the right key, that no man can shut it. Now there's your success right there. This is, what, this is the failure of ministry today. This is the failure of churches. This is the failure of pastors. This is the failure of Christianity. They've lost the key. This church is called the church of the open door. The next church we're going to study, Laodicean church, is called the church of the closed door. The door's been shut. You know why it's shut? They lost the key, and nobody can get it open. That's why it's so tough for us today. It's tough to open a door in a world that nobody wants the door open. And it's, it's, it requires a special kind of person to be able to do that, special kind of people to get that done, because it's just too easy to go the other way. He says in verse 8 that God knows your works. He also knows the motive behind those works. The concept when he says to them, I set before thee an open door. <clears throat> this is a time when uh, in 400 years or so, 
uh, during this period of time that literally three quarters of the world have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Three quarters of the world come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When you go over to Daniel chapter 7 and you put all these Gentile nations together, you'll find at the end of the Philadelphian church age, another image comes up, and that image is the great bear. That'll be Russia. And you'll find that uh, during this period of time, the Laodicean church period, that bear is told to devour much flesh. And you're going to find that the two contrasts between these two churches is that when the Word of God was the key and the door was open, three-quarters of the world were saved. In the latest in church period, when the door was closed, three-quarters of the world went communist. He devoured much flesh. You bet he did. You bet he did. You bet he did. This church had come to the end of self through the persecution of 1,600 years. God had used 1,600 years or so of severe persecution to forge this church into the the spear, tip of the spear that God needed to take it to the ends of the earth. It had kept his word. That'll be in their day, 1600, the A.V. 1611. In the Dark Ages, it'll be the old Latin and the old Syriac. It'll be the Greek manuscripts out of Antioch. It'll be Martin Luther's German translation. It'll be William Tyndale's, Coverdale's, Coverdale's Great, the Geneva Bible. And then the Bible says, have not denied his name. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 that his name is called the Word of God. They didn't deny the book for the life of me. Maybe it's just me. I think that's just the easiest thing in the world to understand. (laughs) Maybe it's just how easy I explain it. But I think that is the easiest thing in the world to see and understand. But yet, nobody sees that today. Maybe they don't want to see it. Maybe they're blinded to see it. I don't know. But to me, that is the easiest thing in the world to see. Verse 9 says, the synagogue of Satan. Those that say they are Jews. This will be a reference directly to the Roman Catholic Church, who has now officially set up herself as the one true church and has taken all the literal promises given to Israel and yet, uh, and yet to be fulfilled and apply them to herself. And then have the audacity to set a sinner on a golden throne uh, in, 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 uh, uh, in uh, Italy and, uh, and call him God or call him Holy Father. And of course, this is what it's talking about. He says, I will make them come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That'll be the 400 years between 1600 approximately up to about 1900. And that's the time where the Roman Catholic Church, though she's underground, and though she's, she's trying to do what she can to get back at it, she's basically uh, lost her punch. And the, uh, the true Bible believers are taking it to the ends of the earth, and boy, we're seeing some great things take place during this 400 years. It'll run 1600 to 1900. Anybody who can study history can read the Bible can see God's stamp of approval on the Philadelphian church. People can argue dates, origins, theology, but the facts of history stand as the greatest witness to the Bible because, as I've said, the God of history is the God of the Bible. And you just can't get around it. I mean, uh, you can't miss unless you just want to. You cannot miss in any scenario when the hand of God is on something. 
The contrast is so stark. It's so different. It's night versus day. It is absolutely. You study this and contrast it to the Laodicean church period or any other church period. It is stands out alone and there is no question in anybody's mind who's got any brain cells left that God's hand was on this church in a mighty way, more unlike any other time in the period of history. Now, why is that? And the only answer you can logically, honestly come up with is because of the Bible that they had. Because there's only two Bibles during this period of time. There is the Roman Catholic Douay Reims, and there is the King James 1611 that finally got going in 1603 and finished in 1611. And by 1700 or so, it was finalized in the last edition, and it's off to the races. Now, it just blows my mind that people can't see when God's hand is in something. I mean, you compare a dead church to a live church, you compare a church where they got nobody that can teach anything to a church that's got people that can, anybody can teach everything. You got a church that wins nobody to Christ, church that gets people saved, churches of people that people are flowing into and out of. That's all part of the process. How in the world can you miss that unless you simply want to miss that? And that's the way preachers are with church history. That's the way they are with her church history. During this time, the Roman Catholic Church is almost out of business. She has to go underground to stay alive. We talked about the six things that she did. And the blessings of God shower down on the men in the Bible-believing groups, men who paid the price for so long for what they loved and believed. And truly, ladies and gentlemen, when God opened the door, no man can shut it. Now, there's a great lesson here. And you can't help make the parallel to our own church. There's a great lesson here. In fact, uh, I liked Old Paths Baptist Church, and that said what I wanted. But if I wouldn't have had that when I would have called this Open Door Baptist Church, something that associates with the Philadelphian church age, of course, Jeremiah 6.16 does it just fine. But I'll tell you what. When you have the Word of God and you believe that book and you stand by that book, you're going to have the blessings of God shower down on you. I don't care what, who says what, what happens, what transpires. It doesn't matter what personal tax you come under or this church come under. When you honor the book, God honors you. And that's true of an individual, and that's true of, of, of churches. And, of course, we see that because God honored these people that had paid the price. Verse 10, boy, a lesson here. The Bible says, I'll keep thee from the hour of temptation. That hour of temptation in your Bible is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to mark it down in your Bible. It was Paul's greatest fear for the church. You know what Paul's greatest fear was for the church? Paul feared that, that as the devil beguiled Eve through his subtleties, that your mind should, should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. That was Paul's greatest fear. And that was the hour of temptation. The hour of temptation would be that the church would be introduced again to scholasticism. That the common, the most powerful thing in this world would cease to be a common man with a common Bible. That education would creep back in, and that's exactly what happens. Education, <coughs> Christian education, any education beyond third grade, has one goal, and that is to take the things that are simplistic that God put down here and make them complicated. We start to see it in 1900. 
at 1900 to jump ahead for a moment so you have a context to put it in. This is when the hour, the hour of temptation started about 1850 in reality when the Shiniatis manuscripts were found. We'll go through all this when we cover manuscript evidence. But in 1850 or so, 1860, Tischendorf found uh, uh, the, uh, the, the manuscripts up in the uh, Sinai there in St. Catherine's Monastery. And, um, and they already had found the Vaticanus ones about the uh, 13th century. And uh, those two ancient texts now formed a, a concept of a new Bible that was going to come out. Scholasticism came back in the forefront. Two guys by the name of Westcott and Hort, two Roman Catholics, trained by the Jesuits out of Cambridge and Oxford. They took those two, those texts, and they went in there for 20 years, and they went to work on it, and when they come out 20 years later, they come out with the first revision of the Bible, the RSV of 1881. And it went from the RSV of 1881 to the ASV of 1901, and then right on down the line to there, to where we're at today. And that was the hour of temptation. The hour of temptation started with that, and it comes around 1900 with the rebirth of neo-evangelicalism and neo-orthodoxy. Neo-evangelicalism and neo-orthodoxy both had one goal in mind. Neo-evangelicalism wanted to take back uh, the knowledge of the Bible and put it back with the scholars because they didn't think that common men had any right to know the Bible without being taught by the scholars. So the neo-evangelical movement moved the realm of the Bible back to scholarship. Neo-orthodoxy brought in all the dead things that the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches were uh, had and brought them back into the light and put it all back in a scholasticism concept. The third, the fourth installment of that, well, around 1900, was the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement was what they call in, uh, in the firing squad the coupe de grace. Uh, they set you up and they fire you, you shoot you, you fall down, you've been shot 19 times, but they want to make sure. So the officer comes by, takes his little pistol out and puts one in the back of your head. That was the charismatic movement did for the church. It was the bullet in the back of the head. What the Seniatis and Vaticanus couldn't accomplish, what the neo-evangelicals and the neo-orthodox couldn't accomplish, the, the charismatic church did. It put the end of it. And it took every aspect and destroyed Christianity from one end to the other. Here we are, a uh, hundred years later, 110 years later, what do we have? We have people running around who are composites of all three of these. Nobody believe, knows what they believe anymore. You got people who believe in a charismatic movement. They don't even stop to think that nobody believed what the charismatic believed for 1900 years in church history. They don't know, they don't care. We've lost our relevancy for truth. Everybody on this planet, every pastor in this, in, this, in this city and around this country believes that if you need to be a pastor, they're going to ship you off to Bible college and let the Jesuits finish you off. That's exactly what they'll do. I don't know how many times in the 40 years of my ministry, I saw a young man who believed a book go off to Bible college and come back, talked out of that book. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. The hour of temptation. Then he says, behold, I come quickly. And uh, that is a reference uh, to, the, to God's timing. This is the problem we all have. When we read things like that in the Bible where it says, well, God will come quickly, we say to ourselves, well, that was written, you know, in 90 AD. That's been two, almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, that ain't very quick. No, 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 no. It's never quick in your time. It's quick in God's time. 
And when you understand God's timekeeping process, you'll realize that uh, it's in relationship to that. For instance, over there in Matthew chapter 20, if you ever studied it, I don't know if you ever went through it or not, but in Matthew chapter 20, he talks about a 12-hour day. That 12-hour day starts at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning and goes to 6 o'clock at night, or what they call the even. We call it evening. But even is at 6 o'clock. We call it evening. It starts at 6 o'clock. And you're going to find that he gives you a list down there of the hours that, uh, and the story goes like this, that, uh, that a, a man has a, a field, a vineyard, and he calls workers into the labor of it. And some go in early in the morning, some go in at nine, at the ninth hour, some go in at 10th hour, some go in at that, right up till 6 o'clock. And yet when you take that thing and analyze it and put it to the Bible test, you'll find that those workers going in match up to the seven periods of church history. And you'll find that those workers go in there and there are pictures of the workers that God sends into this vineyard, the world, uh, all down through church history. The early ones would, would be and when Christ was around or the early apostles, they go in. It runs right up through the dark ages. You can walk it right up to there. And when you come down to it, to the 11th hour, the last workers go in when you figure it up on a scale of 12 hours and 2,000 years in church history. That tells you that the last workers go into the vineyard. The last workers go in, 1837. Last workers went in. So when he's talking about uh, quickly, he's talking about God's timetable. And uh, God's timetable is always different than our timetable. Now, when the Reformation starts, the Bible believers are behind the Reformers. They're with them. But as the Reformation goes on, they soon find out that the offspring of the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestants, are no different. And they are soon persecuted by other church-state systems because all of them set up their own church-state system. When the Lutherans broke from the uh, Germany, they set up Lutheran as the church-state. England already was the Anglican Church or the Church of England. Scotland, their church-state was the Presbyterian Church, as was, uh, you know, other places uh, so they find out that it uh, that uh, you know that they the systems are all the same, and they killed many. John Calvin would kill a Baptist and martyr him just as sure as the Roman Catholic Church would, and this leads to more persecution of the true line, and God is using this to squeeze this thing till it pops, and uh, all this is taking place in Europe. And uh, we see that it also brings about some more splits within the organization because in every group you've got good people who are caught up in bad churches and they they see it. And uh, in Germany, the church stayed up was Lutheran. When they began to go bad and die doctrinally and set formalism back and go back to the Roman Catholic Church, a group splits from them. And these groups are a Bible-believing group who will not put up with it anymore, and they are called in church history pietists. And the pietist movement is out of the Lutheran church in Germany. The pietists would be the Bible-believing crowd that started out with the Reformation and was happy with it, but when the Lutheran church went back to sleep and went back into their formalism, the pietists would not go along with it, and they split, and they went out. 
Their convictions were simple. They, and they left the Lutheran church for the basic reason that the Bible is the word of God and no other authority is acceptable for man. They thought that Christians should win sinners as, as save, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They thought that man was saved by the blood of Christ shed for him on the cross of Calvary by faith through grace. And they thought that Christ is coming back to set up his millennial reign and no kingdom will come until he returned. That's what they thought. The pietist movement in Europe leads to other Bible-believing groups who split from the Protestants. Once the pietists started to go out, and you need to learn where these groups come from. Once the pietists broke out and it started to happen again, we're going to find that out of these groups came groups like the Moravians, the Mennonites. We look at Mennonites today and we have them in Missouri. And we look at Mennonites today and we don't even understand where they came from. There was a time, even though they're, in, they're messed up now, there was a time when the Mennonites were a very Bible-believing group. The Amish were another one. The Amish ride black buggies down the road and make their own clothes and, and, and do all the things and they're about as outcast as you could want. But in the beginning, the Amish were a very Bible-based group and they broke out because of the fact that they were Bible-based. You had a group called the Dunkards. They were called the Dunkards because they baptized people by putting them under. They dumped, dunked them. So they're called Dunkers. The leaders of this group called Pietist Movement are guys like Philip Jacob Spinner, 1635 to 1705. August Hermann Franke, 1663 to 1727. The leaders of the Moravian Movement in Germany, and all this is in Germany now, the leaders of the Moravian movement in Germany were Count Zindendorf, 1700 to 1760, and August Spondenberg uh, in 1704 to 1792. And they call, all these groups come out of the Lutheran church because the church is going into apostasy and it, they're not going to stand for it. It's interesting that in the Roman Catholic historians, when they want to beat up on the Moravian and who were one of the greatest missionary movements that the world has ever seen, and we'll talk about them when we get to that point. But the Roman Catholic historians tell you that the, uh, that the leaders of the Moravian movement, you can trace their roots back to the original heretical group called the Waldensians. Okay? In other words, all these groups are tied back together to the Bible-believing group some way, some way. Now, these groups of men did not intend to start their own church but or groups, but both men learned a great lesson of life. And that simply is, and I tell you this all the time, you can't reform a dead church from the inside. Once a church goes into apostasy, there's nothing you can do. Uh, when the Southern Baptist Convention went into apostasy through the Jesuit influence back in the 20s, uh, the thing that killed the Southern Baptist Church was uh, what had happened within our own works. But in 1920s, their great, their great seminaries were in Louisville and places like that. They were teaching evolution. They were teaching that the Bible was fables, that the story of Noah wasn't true to their seminary students. And that was all because of the Jesuit influence. And they, were, they, they destroyed themselves. And they never, 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 never got back. That's why... J. Frank Norris, who was one of their fair-haired boys back in the early days, um, 
revolted against it when he saw the apostasy. J. Frank Norris believed the King James Bible was the Word of God every day of his life. In about 1930 or whatever it was in there, early 40s, uh, he split with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, threw the whole thing in disarray. I mean, it was the biggest Bailey Hooey fight, knockdown, drag out you ever saw in your life. And J. Frank Norris had enough courage because he knew that you could not reform something from the inside. J. Frank Norris, and we'll study it when we get to it, is our great-great-grandfather of where this church comes from. My pastor, uh, Dr. Harold Henniger, who's gone home to be with the Lord now, uh, who ran the Canton Baptist Temple where I grew up and I was saved and my mom and dad were saved. He started that church in 1945, 1945 or 46 or 47, one in there. He was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. And uh, that's my roots. My roots go back through J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris uh, is, was one of the most loved men and one of the most hated men uh, on the face of this planet. Still is to this day. There's places you, you go and you say J. Frank Norris' name and they'll love you. There's places you go and you say his name, they'll throw you out in the street and set you on fire. I mean, he was one guy who God used to break the back of the, of the, uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention, which was the largest Baptist church in America, uh, in 1900 up to about, uh, well, probably maybe even till today. There were no fundamental churches back then. Every fundamental church that you have today, I don't care who they are. Every Bible college out there today, I don't care who they are. If they're not Southern Baptists, they all start with J. Frank Norris, and then they split off from that group there. Nobody even knows that. You got Baptist churches that, that have lost their roots with J. Frank Norris, who threw out the Word of God, don't even know that they what it is anymore, that don't even know their roots go back to a man who left the Southern Baptist Church for the very same thing that they're believing now. It's it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And uh, you know, that's 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 what happened. J. Frank Norris knew it. He learned a great lesson that we talked about with Erasmus and Luther. Luther left the Roman Catholic Church, thought a Reformation. Erasmus tried to stay in the Roman Catholic Church and bring it back and reform it, and he got clobbered, and he never could do it. Because you can't do it. If you're in a dead church, you sticking into that dead church and staying with that dead church will lead you just to become as dead as they are. You can't stay and fix it. There's only one thing you can do. It's been tested time and time again through principles down through history in the Bible. You've got to get out. You've got to get out. And these guys, Spanner, Franke, and Zindendorf, and Spondenberg, they didn't start out to start their own church groups, but both learned a great lesson that you can't reform it after it goes dead on the inside. So they leave or are kicked out, whichever you want to say. Uh, that's probably a better term. And these men tear Germany apart with the Bible and the teaching and the, pre- and the preaching of a King James 1611 authorized version. And, of course, they are called heretics by a Chablis-Sturt system. Just like before, it was caught, they were called heretics by the Roman Catholic Church. Now the church-state churches are calling these guys heretics. Ah, but it doesn't matter. The move is on its way. And God is going to do some things and going to get the thing done. The same thing happens in England. The groups that were once called Lombards, Waldensians, Albigensians, Huguenots, all these groups were then called Anabaptists, and now they're just labeled together as Baptists. And the Church of England persecuted them. In England, because the English Baptists 
position was not in accordance with the doctrine of the Church of England. Uh, these groups are called separatists. Or sometimes nonconformist. That's a good term. It's a derogatory term to them, but it's a good term. Baptists were called Baptists because they were against infant baptism. Separatists were against, uh, was a name given to them because they separated from the Church of England. Or they would not conform, so they're nonconformist to the Church of England doctrine. These groups are labeled uh, uh, Puritans by some uh, people, but that's not a very accurate term at all. They all have their individual deal. We'll talk about the Puritans a little bit later. But as the uh, pressure of all, the, all through Europe and England amounts, the Bible-believing groups get squeezed. And this is what God's intention is. England's going to come to the point where she's going to be responsible for putting out some of the greatest preachers the world has ever seen. But God used, before the Church of England lost its punch and the Bible believers regained it in England, she's going to come to the place where God uses that persecution to get them out of there. You find Dutch Baptists, English Baptists, French Baptists, German Baptists. They all come together under the persecution. And what happens when it gets so bad, what they do is God opens up the door and a little... And from that little seafaring place in England, and off they go, and in 1620, they land at what we know as Plymouth Rock. And from 1620, for the next 30 years, over 30,000 Bible-believing people who want to worship God and preach the Bible and have made their mission field now the American Indian and are going to train their kids build their churches, preach the Bible without any fear of somebody knocking down their door in the middle of the night through a church stage set up and putting them in prison, God opened up the door. What you have at that point is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 9, if you're paying attention. He says back there, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He says that Ham is going to be a servant to his brothers. And then he says, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. That's a prophecy on all three boys that pronounced on the three major races. And it says, God will enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth is the European. And in 1620, God had used the explorers to forge the way, even though they were Roman Catholic. He used them. He kept them out of the way of what he was going to establish as a nation, kept them down south. And at that point in 1620, Japheth was enlarged. He left Europe, came to America, and then he started dwelling in the tents of Shem. You and I tonight in Kansas City are sitting and dwelling, and your house is built on the very place that 100, 200 years ago, 200 years ago anyhow, was the tents of Shem. The Gentiles move out of Europe, come to America. And we'll hold up there and we'll... Uh, We'll pick it up next time at that particular point. Uh, but when the Mayflower group hits Plymouth, they come to this country looking for religious freedom to preach and pray and worship God without persecution from any church-state setup. From 1620 to 1640, 30,000 people come from Europe and England, and we see God opening up the door to the greatest nation the world has ever seen to carry a gospel around the end of the world. And we'll pick it up there next time, and we'll look at it, and we'll put it all together.